I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. I've got the Washington Monument on my right-hand side, the Capitol on my left-hand side. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find 10. Come with me. Yes. The Smithsonian. Hi, sir. Uh, can you tell me about this exhibit? So this is actually the information desk? My bad. Sorry. Hi, sir. How you doing? Can you tell me about this exhibit? Uh, this is the main gift shop. This is the gift shop? Damn, are there any exhibits around here? Excuse me, sir. Can you help me out? Sure. What can I help you with? Oh, I'm lost. Okay. So I, need, I just need to know where I'm going. Around? I'm just going around? Yes. Oh, do you know how I can get around? You walk. Excuse me. We're doing a podcast with the Smithsonian. Doing a what? A, a podcast. Oh, I work here. I, oh. I, I've seen your face before. What do you do here? My maintenance. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm lost. Can you please help me out? What do you want to see? I got to see 10 objects. Can you help me find them? Uh, I'll tell you what. Go see the first lady's dresses. The first lady's dresses? Yeah. Yeah, that would be something you would yeah. suggest. <laughs> Bunch of ladies' dresses. Thanks a lot, man. So, it turns out I'm bad at museums. That's something I learned today. Along with gift shops are not exhibits, and Eleanor Roosevelt and I are roughly the same size. The good news is that I'm not really here for the public displays at the museum. I am here to go behind the scenes at a place they call the nation's attic. So we're going into the storage room. What is this? Um, Temperature and humidity controlled. Somehow, we convinced the American History Museum to let me, Asif Manvi, former correspondent for The Daily Show, root around behind the scenes in their storage collections. Uh, let's see, all right, okay. Staff area, authorized access only. Here okay. the, we are now in the bowels of the Smithsonian. There are 19 Smithsonian museums and research centers with over a million objects on display. And if that sounds like a lot of stuff, that's because it is. But that is less than 1% of the Smithsonian's total collections. The other 155 million objects are tucked away in storage. In the same way, everybody's house has a drawer full of surge protectors and iPhone charging cables. The difference here is that these objects happen to be national treasures. Oh, oh, oh my God. I just yeah, almost asked, broke it. We asked that you don't Almost touch broke it. Here. All right. I guess that's why most people don't ever get to come back here. Now, when I first heard that the Smithsonian had massive storage collections, I pictured, you know, the warehouse from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's not like that at all. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. Okay, maybe it's a little like that. Everything here does belong in a museum, but nothing is sealed in big wooden crates. You can actually touch this stuff if you're wearing the right gloves. There's a little baggie I'm holding with Leonard Nimoy's ears. And then it's signed by Leonard Nimoy. These Spock ears were used by Leonard Nimoy in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Just a pair of weird, crumbling, pointy foam ears in a bag. I'm a Vulcan. I have no ego to bruise. 
We have in here the original uh, clock used uh, at the beginning of a 60 Minutes program. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What is this? Prince donated this guitar. <gasps> this is an object that is about as emblematic of Prince's life and career than anything I think you could find. Wow. This place is incredible and overwhelming, but here's the problem. I can only pick 10 objects, one for each episode of this podcast. That's a nearly impossible task. So I'm going to narrow it down. I am an entertainer, allegedly. So I'll choose 10 objects from the history of American entertainment that have special significance to me. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. This is amazing. It was worn while he was training for the Rumble in the Jungle. I am also hunting for objects in the Smithsonian's collections that symbolize important cultural moments. You're opening a cabinet here, and wowzer, here are Muppets. Hi ho, Kermit the Frog here. Now look, I can't tell the story of each object all on my own. So we're going to talk to experts at the Smithsonian, and we'll talk to some of the people who help make these objects significant. You know, the people who are the reason we care about these objects in the first place. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity, frozen in time. By learning more about them, maybe we'll learn more about ourselves. I'm Asif Manvi, and it's time to get lost at the Smithsonian. So tell us where we are. Uh, we're in the uh, storage room for uh, sports and entertainment here at the National Museum of American History. Mm-hmm. What is that? Oh, man. Is, uh, is that what I think it is? It is. This is Fonzie's jacket. It is Fonzie's jacket right? worn by uh, Henry Winkler on yeah. the television show Happy Days. Fonzie's jacket? Are you kidding me? This has got to be the most iconic part of one of the most iconic sitcoms of all time. Happy Days. Now, I moved to Florida when I was 16, but I grew up in England. And when I was a kid, there was nothing cooler than the Fonz. Now, the Fonz rode a motorcycle. He had perfect hair. He wore a leather jacket. He was everything I wasn't. How come? Because I'm the Fonz. Happy Days is one of the most popular sitcoms of all time. Between 1974 and 1984, ABC aired 255 episodes of Happy Days. People couldn't get enough of it. Happy Days brought the 1950s back to life. Or at least, an idealized version of it. The show centered around the Cunningham family, who lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was a classic American family. And the Fonz, well... The Fonz was the coolest guy in town. I need a good picture of you. Well, I got some pictures inside. Well, now, it's got to be a very good one. Hey, could this face take a bad picture? (laughs) I guess not. Now, the Fonz was played by the actor Henry Winkler, who managed to pull off the impossible. He was the epitome of cool and also completely approachable all at the same time. Yes, can I help you, sir? No, I'm no sir. I'm a new kid. Oh, a new student. Yeah. This is Arthur Fonzarelli. All right. I mean, here you have the coolest guy in school, and all of his friends are complete dorks. That gave dorks like me hope. Hope that someday we could be cool. Or at least have friends who were. You seem to be very popular. Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, by the way, I like to be called Fonzie. 
Uh, you may take a seat, uh, Fonzie. Thanks. So Fonzie was hugely important to me, but what's his jacket doing at the Smithsonian? I sat down with a curator here at the American History Museum to find out why. All right, here we go. Okay, Eric, what's your name? Uh, I don't know. You said you confused uh, me with like all of it. You said, "Okay, Eric, what's your yeah, name?" Right. All right, so uh, you do it again. Uh, okay. Uh, what, what what's your name? Eric. Eric. Yes. And you have a, Eric. Eric. Okay, let's start again. Um, what's your name? Eric. Do you have a last name? I do. What is that? Jens. Why did it take so long to was it pulling teeth getting your name out of you? This is going to be terrible. Okay. This interview. I was wrong. The interview wasn't terrible at all. Eric Jens is a phenomenally knowledgeable guy. And even though we were strangers, we quickly bonded over the power of Fonzie's jacket. So you came to the Smithsonian when you were a child? Yes. And you've stayed ever since? Is that what happened? No, I came as a child. My dad had a conference out here like once a year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he'd have to go to the conference. So he dumped me off at the Smithsonian Museums to run around. Oh, okay. So he was an absentee father in many ways. Um, Not as much as you would hope sometimes. Right. Okay. (laughs) All right. We won't get into that right now. But when you came here as a child, how old were you? I was about 10. 10? 10, 9 or 10. Yeah. And there was one particular item that struck you. That item was Fonzie's jacket from Happy Days. And it was on display? It was on display. Um, I was really excited to see it. I had gone through a lot of the Smithsonian museums, you know, trying to just understand what's going on because, you know, I'm a young kid. I don't Mm -hmm. really know history. But then to see something that was so relevant to my life because, you know, I thought about Fonzie a lot when I was a kid. Yes. You came to the Smithsonian a lot as a child? Sometimes. You know, oh, you're, I guess the question is like, well, how did I get to have this kind of strange symmetry in my life hey, right I'll now? Where the questions, with, pal. Uh, <laughs> You end up working here. Right. Um, you know, you hate to use the word like fate, but it's sort of true. I went to, you know, university. I got uh, degrees in English, Lit, and History. And then I was like, well, I have to get a job in something. And I finally realized, like, I love museums. And I really love, you know, the popular culture stuff. And I really loved seeing Fonzie's jacket. Mm -hmm. It was like that was really uh, this important moment to me to be able. It just, like, really triggered a lot of thoughts, Mm -hmm. you know, that I didn't have prior. I, as a kid, had a poster of the Fonz Mm -hmm. in my room. I don't know if you did. No. Oh, okay. I wish. Um, <laughs> now I'm jealous, retroactively. Um, I did. I had this poster of the Fonz with the jacket and the hay and the thumbs yeah. up and all that. For me, I was a little Indian kid in the north of England, mm. and I was sort of seeing this iconic American symbol of masculinity mm. and trying to, like, be that, mm-hmm. you know? And that sort of defined a lot of my childhood, you know, was, was trying to, like, live up to that thing. I'll tell you about women, all right? They are not real people. Maybe he's right, Dad. Maybe I'm right. I will say that what's interesting is that, you know, you're saying that he represented this American masculinity, his coolness, but, you know, Henry Winkler himself is the son of immigrants. They came from, uh, in the late 30s, they fled uh, Germany, Mm -hmm. you know, right before the war, and he's a Yale-trained MFA actor, you know? So, and this is the person that's representing American cool. Cool Americans come from all over, you know what I mean? And, and, And 
what we want to say in all our collections, including Fonzie Jacket, is that there's this intense connection that people have with popular culture because it really helps them understand the world and build their own identities. Right. And it's interesting because in doing a little research into this, I realized that, like, I, I didn't know this at the time because I was a little kid, but, you know, Happy Days came out right around the time of Watergate. Mm-hmm. And it was right after the Vietnam War. And it was, uh, you know, after the 60s and the upheaval of all of that stuff. And there was a kind of throwback to the nostalgia of the 50s and how the world was a nicer place then. I mean, it, it wasn't really. Because if you were white. Yeah. But it's an interesting uh, thing about like how America, for me as a little kid in England, like America exported this idea around the world of this is America, which I, you know, just sort of bought. And then the idea of fawns, of the fawns, this is sexuality, it sort of had all that, you know? You think that's part of why it's so iconic for people? I think that... Fonz taught a generation what it was to be cool, what right. it meant to be cool. And of course, there's some other problems where, you know, even at the time, you're kind of like, it's a little chauvinistic. How's it going, guys? Not so good, Fonz. We're not going to make it. Well, how much more do you need? Another 15 bucks. All right, this is from the Fonz to you. A very happy Easter. All right, now listen up, girls. One time, one time only. Line right up here, kiss the Fonz for a buck. Now that's a bargain at any price. <laughs> So how coolness and masculinity are defined has thankfully evolved since 1974, when Happy Days first aired. Case in point, Fonzie had an almost superhuman ability to summon girls just by snapping his fingers. Hey girls, knock yourselves out. I'm really sorry, it was a slip of the fingers. It didn't age super well. This kind of idea of having many girlfriends, of kind of being this alpha. You just, you just do that, and they, hey, say, that's a nice trick. Oh, it ain't no trick, it's a gift. It really did project kind of this conception of what um, ideal masculine figure would be. But in terms of audience agency, the Fonz is actually kind of an interesting story because originally there was a lot of concern about having this kind of like ruffian hood character being right. on the show at all. And the censors were concerned about this is kind of over the era too, concerned about portraying this kind of renegade, rebellious character right. in a positive light. So they tried to tamper down his character. But at the, originally, he was only one of the many characters in the show. But he was the one that the audience connected with right and i think that's interesting that the censors and maybe even the paramount was you know like he's just this one character we have to keep an eye on it became the breakout character of the entire show and when you think of happy days you think of Fonz. after a quick break eric and i take a really close look at the Fonz's jacket and then what's the one thing that could possibly top that I get to take a really close look at the Fonz himself. He was everybody that I dreamt of being and couldn't imagine being. And we're back. Lost at the Smithsonian, where curator Eric Jensen and I have been getting lost in a nostalgic geek out over the Fonz and what Happy Days meant to us. And for as much as a younger me dreamed about someday having a Fonzie's jacket of my own, 
when I finally came face to face with the real thing, it wasn't exactly what I was expecting to see. Now, here's the, 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 the most the surprising thing that, that hits you right out of the gate is that it is brown. Mm, and yeah. I always thought it was black. Yeah. But the fact that it was brown and uh, that Henry Winkler was not quite as large right. as I had imagined mm, was man. really made me, you know, kind of connect to it and think about it more than I expected. And, you know, going back and watching the show and you see, well, yeah, it is a brown bomber jacket and he's not that big a guy, right? right. Also, the other thing I notice is that it's not quite as tough as it seemed on yeah. TV. It's got like these sort of what are the uh, cuff these cuffs and right. the, the soft cuffs soft cuffs and what are the base here? Right. What is that? Is that? Is it's like that, a. It's like a, I don't want to touch it. It's like yeah, it's a fabric. It's, it's non leather fabric, which feels like it's sensible. You right. know, it's sensible for like the uh, Wisconsin winters. Yeah. I I don't remember that either. Yeah. I remember it being a little bit more sort of like a rough and tough jacket, not a sensible jacket like this one sort of looks like. I guess that's a test of Winkler's ability to, yeah. to be the character. In 11 seasons of Happy Days, Henry Winkler got three Emmy nominations for his role as the Fonz. Here are the nominees for supporting actor in a comedy series. But it would take until 2018 before Henry Winkler would finally win his first Emmy for his scene-stealing turn as acting teacher Gene Cousineau on the HBO series, Barry. And the Emmy goes to... Henry Winkler. That was a, a, a glorious night. Oh, my God. Okay. I only have 37 seconds. I wrote this 43 years ago. Okay. I'm going to start by uh, just being a, a total fanboy for a minute, uh -huh. if you will indulge Thank me. <laughs> this, right now, I'm, you don't know how, how nervous I am because right huh. now I am speaking with Henry Winkler. I'm, you know, like you were the poster on my wall when I was 13 years old. And Well, I, you know what I wanted to say? I was very comfortable there. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I've heard that you have visited your jacket at the Smithsonian. Is that true? I have visited, I've visited it several times. <laughs> Is it weird for people when you are standing there looking at your, your own? Well, I, you know, sometimes the first time I went, I forgot my camera because, you know, you, we didn't have phones with, uh, with cameras. Right. So I had people from Buffalo take a picture of me and then send it to me in the mail. <laughs> That must have been the strangest day that they've ever had at the Smithsonian. Yeah, but it was great for me. <laughs> right. But here, here's the thing. That that moment, I, I don't even know if I have the words for how important that moment was for me as an individual. Because I was told, now I speak publicly, so I tell this story. I literally have the picture of my presenting the jacket in 1980 in my photos when I, when I speak. Because I was told I would never achieve. I was told that uh, I will never uh, succeed, uh, certainly not succeed in, in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And here I was with my wife, Stacy, presenting my jacket from a character that I started with six lines 
1974. So whatever that is uh, in 1980. I'm so dyslexic, I couldn't tell you. Now, my parents were sitting behind me. My parents escaped Nazi Germany. They were unbelievably overbearing and strict. I had great respect for their journey, but they did not want me to be an actor. They did not applaud my success until all of a sudden they were sitting behind me at the Smithsonian. Wow. So on so many levels, and then of course I'm represented twice because my lunchbox is also in the collection. Yeah. So it's an amazing story. And, and honestly, like talking to you is inspiring. It, it is, look, I was a little Indian kid growing up in the north of England, dealing with being bullied, racism, all of these things. Sure. And for me, Fonzie represented something, you know, his name was Fonzarelli and he became the Fonz. And my name was Mandviwala. And I was like, maybe I can be the Mons, you know. Oh, that's <laughs> great. I mean, I just remember me and my friend Jigger, both of us little Indian kids in this school in the north of England, walking around and doing the thumbs and going, hey, and to each other, because it sort of reinforced something for us. And I wonder, you know, where did that character come from in you? He was everybody who I wanted to be, and who I wasn't, because I was not in control of my life or my psyche. I was nervous all the time. I was pedantic as a young man, you know, to cover what my whatever, my lack of knowledge. And so he was everybody that I dreamt of being and couldn't imagine being. So he was like an alter ego. Yes. And all I did was change my voice in the audition and yeah. change my body. Uh, I just shifted my weight to one foot. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, he came out of me in a shot. Wow. I have always felt that because Fonzie was an alter ego and, 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 and because they cast you, and it wasn't, you know, it was originally written as this kind of brooding, dark, sort of James Deany kind of character. And I wonder if they, had, if they had cast somebody who wasn't a Jewish immigrant kid with dyslexia who had, you know, like, like I wonder if the character would have resonated. There was something inherent. So I would imagine they wanted a, a, a tall Italian guy that was in Gary Marshall's mind. Mm -hmm. And it's happened a lot in my career where people said, oh, we thought of X, Y, and Z. And then you walked in and we went, oh yeah, that would work too. Right. <laughs> now, when you auditioned for the role, there's a story about combing your hair and the thing that became iconic. We're looking but that was not an audition. That was oh. the first day on the set. Okay. It was written in the script that the Fonz goes to the mirror and combs his hair. Mm -hmm. In my imagination, I made a promise to myself, I would never do that. Every actor who's ever played a character like the Fonz has a, a comb in his back pocket, combed his hair, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to do that. And I said to the director, look, I've made a deal with myself. I'm 
I'm not going to comb my hair. I'll do anything else. And the director said, isn't that adorable? It says the Fonz goes to comb his hair. That's what they wrote. Go and comb your hair. So I had to be true to myself and a professional. I was making $1,000 a week. I was making more money than I ever had seen in my life. So I went to the mirror and I just pulled out the comb and my imagination went, hey, I don't have to comb my hair because it's perfect. (laughs) And that moment, being true to the script and true to myself, defined the character for the next 10 years. So I was surprised when I saw the jacket. In my mind, Fonzie's jacket was this kind of a rough and tough sort of jacket. And when I saw it, I was surprised that it's actually a very sensible looking jacket. It has cloth cuffs. The thing is that the original jacket, which was much more rough and tumble, was much more lived in, was actually stolen after the first season Ah. from the costume department at Paramount. Okay. So they made five. Uh Uh-huh. They put them under lock and key. Gary Marshall, bless his soul, had one. Yeah. I have one. We ripped the the lining out of one so that I could water ski in it. Uh-huh. One of them is in the Smithsonian, and I think that's four, and I don't know where the other one is. Now, in, originally, ABC didn't want Fonzie to wear the jacket, right? Right. They, they thought I was going to be associated with crime. Right. And so what, I, I seem to remember that in the beginning, were you wearing a, another, something else? You weren't wearing a leather uh, jacket. A McGregor golf jacket with a flimsy collar that never stayed up, which was the bane of my existence. <laughs> and how long did you wear that? I wore that for 11 episodes. And then Gary Marshall went to ABC And he said, you know, if uh, the Fonz rode his bike and he wore like this cloth jacket, he could be hurt. (laughs) So they said, all right, as long as he wears, as long as he's with his bike, he can wear a leather jacket. And Gary told the writers never to write a scene without my bike again. And that's why you rode your bike into Arnold's. That's right. Or it was in my apartment. You know, it was everywhere. Now, did you ever learn to ride the bike? I rode it for, I think, uh, 19 feet. I rode it up the hill. Uh huh. And then they put it on a board with rubber wheels and pulled me behind a truck for the next 10 years. (laughs) Now, I want to ask you, what it was like to be a sex symbol. You probably never thought that that would happen for you in your career. Well, you don't, it's hard to imagine when you have very little self-image that you're a sex symbol. What I ultimately could not deny is that a lot of people wanted my socks without ever taking off my shoes. (laughs) They wanted something I was wearing. Right. Did you feel like you had to keep your feet on the ground or did you did you get swept up in it? I don't know how I did it. I'm just grateful. Here I was and I was getting 50,000 letters a week. Mm. I was getting gifts. I was being um, feted all over the world. 
but I did not grow an inch and I still couldn't do geometry. So I figured, oh, I must be the same guy. It's remarkable. You know, I mean, a lot of people in your position might have, you know, we hear it all the time uh, going off into. I mean, yeah, you know. but when, when I first started in California, I thought of my career. Here I am. I got the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, now I'm doing the Fonz. So I saw myself as a forest ranger. Mm. And I saw myself plant my career as a sapling. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to grow up and be a, a the trunk as high and as straight as it could be. And I knew that if I bought in to thinking I was who people were thinking I was, my tree would catch on fire. Because? It would be a lie. I could never be what everybody imagined me. And, and people also, one of the, the things that they would, after they put their thumb up and went, hey, they would go, Wow, you're a lot shorter than I thought. Did you feel like, did you feel that pressure to, you know, there's that pressure of giving, giving the people what they want, you know? Was there a sense of... No, I, at that time, I was so nuts that I literally thought I could tell them I was Henry and that the Fonz was only a character. And I was being typecast anyway, so... If I had to do it over again, I would just shut up and go A all the time. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I, I did so much talking about, you know, I'm Henry, and it's completely different. And, you know, he was also one of the most sexual characters on television at that time. Oh, I didn't know that. He would click his fingers, women would come running. You yes, know. that is true. Oh, so here is my advice to you. Never. Snap your fingers at a woman. <laughs> she will break them. That works in fantasy on television, not so much in life. Right. And there was a bravado and a kind of, you know, a misogyny in terms of like the fact that like women would come running. Was that something that was ever talked about or conscious? You know what? I never, I never thought of that as misogyny. I just thought that I was respectful yeah. to the the girls that came. I just didn't have to move much. And did young men talk to you a lot about their experience in terms of how they related to Fonz, the Fonz? Oh my gosh. I, women, men, grandparents, you name it, have come to me and have shown me a picture of them as four uh, wearing a Fonzie T-shirt. Boys were the Fonz, girls were the Fonz, everybody in between were the Fonz. And I think that is is a testament to your performance of him. Because I think there was a vulnerability at the heart of the Fonz. Well, that's definitely true. I mean, because I said to the producers when they asked me if I would play the part, I said, look, when he's at home and he's got nobody to be cool for, Mm-hmm. there's got to be like an emotional side that's going on. Like, you know, Mrs. C was my mother. And they eventually showed that uh, I did not have a relationship with my mother or my father, you know, a really good one. So the Cunninghams were not just the Cunninghams. They were my family. 
Who do you think the Fonz would have been today? I think Mr. Goodwrench. I think he would have opened <laughs> a syndicate of uh, garages across the country. Yeah. <laughs> you think he'd still be wearing the jacket? Do you know what? I think he would have had to have made it one size larger. <laughs> That's true. It is a very small jacket. You were very tiny. I was. And, you know, look, and, and Fonzie, the character that you created on that show, even, you know, has become one of the most iconic American television characters of all time. Well, you know, you know what? That makes me really happy. I mean, I, I just, I have no problem in just thinking, wow, that is a wonderful thing to have a dream. And then all of a sudden that happens. So that's, yeah. that just is amazing to me. Well, you have been a great inspiration to Thank me you. and to many other... Well, I've really enjoyed chatting with you, I must say. This has been a, uh, a bucket list moment for me, so thank you. Thank you. The amazing Henry Winkler. Now, if you have any information as to the whereabouts of the missing fifth Fonzie jacket, let me know. Don't tell Winkler, don't tell Gents, don't tell the Smithsonian. Just, you know, give me a call and we'll work something out. Next time... Jose Feliciano was the first artist to perform a personalized rendition of the national anthem at the World Series in 1968. And it nearly destroyed his career. Oh, uh, definitely. Um, radio stations stopped playing my records. Really? Lost at the Smithsonian is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our executive producer and editor is Ellen Weiss. Technical support from Robin Wise. Fact-checking from Danielle Roth. And scripting by Alex Berg. Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford and John Delore. Original theme music by Casey Holford. Our supervising producer is Jordan Bell. And our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Eric Jentz, Ryan Lintelman, John Troutman, and Laura Duff for all their help in making this show. Lost at the Smithsonian is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. I'm your host, Asif Manvi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Asif and Facebook at Asif Manvi. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening.